Happy 2019 year of the pig! Back on the air, talking to you again. I know what you were thinking. You were like, oh my god, what's happened? Alan's disappeared. Has he retired? Has the UK eaten him up? Not to worry, I am alive and well and everything is going swimmingly because it's a new year. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what that means, a new year. It's a new start. This year you're going to do it all, aren't you? You're going to get the diet right. You're going to get in fucking shape. You're going to fix up your relationships. You're going to get that job promotion you always wanted. You're going to start working on those lifelong projects that you always wanted to do, but you never quite got the time, got around to doing. This year you're going to do it. This year it's all going to be different. You're not just going to slip back into those well-worn pathways of neurotic, self-destructive behaviour. No, of course you're not this. This year it's all different it's all changed and of course ladies and gentlemen the same is true for me because as many of you know I moved to the United Kingdom to get myself qualified and to start being an up standing member of the community I'm talking about getting a real job I'm talking about recycling my bottles and cans paying taxes being a normal civilised sort of a person and that's definitely what I'm still doing I don't know where these crazy rumours are coming from that people have been saying that I've dropped out of my course and that I'm living on the edge of poverty and that uh, I'm wasting away all the last of my savings on a bunch of mad capped insane harebrained schemes that are bound to end in failure and destruction I don't know where any of that is coming from you know I'm on the straight and narrow path now 2019, the year it all comes together, baby. That's right. Um, (laughs) And you may or may not have noticed that the sound is a little bit different of Fuck You Friday. That is because I am now broadcasting to you from within my brand new sound booth. This uh, sound booth is one that I made myself out of PVC pipe and something that's called an audio blanket. So basically I built this sort of square boxy frame to go around my desk where the microphone and the computer is and all this shite. And then I bought these black dark audio suppressing blankets. So what they do is they don't mean that it's a completely soundproof room but it kind of takes the echo out of the room and it does kill some of the background noise from the road behind me and all this kind of stuff. And I rigged it up with a few red fairy lights and things like that so it looks really cool and funky inside and it is hot as fucking balls because I'm inside a little sort of a fucking black tent here now it's pretty cool I'm very happy with it it was very it was a good fun project to do uh the only thing is though as you probably know I live in a very 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 small bedsit apartment so now there's the sort of you know the rest of the apartment and then there's this giant black box with red light coming out of it in the corner that takes up a very large chunk of the space so as my uh, uncle pointed out to me if I ever did manage to get any ladies to come back to my apartment at any stage I would probably have a difficult time explaining this gigantic red light emanating black David Lynch-esque sort of phone box in the corner of the room because in fairness if you just walked in the door and looked at it, the first thing you would think is, Oh, look, 
He's got a murder box. So what have I been up to in the new year, ladies and gentlemen? Well, besides being an upstanding member of the community and doing my course and doing all the things that I'm definitely still doing, uh, I've also been uh, doing a few extra little classes about filmmaking and uh, audio production and things like that. Uh, just trying to upskill myself. I know it's hard to believe that I could actually get upskilled further than the uh, the wonderful production values you're currently getting um, from my gill box. But one thing I did recently was go on a day course in Radio Reverb. Radio Reverb is like a community-based radio station here in Brighton and they do these days where you can go along and they basically teach you all about radio, how it works, what the legal stuff is, uh, how to produce and edit stuff. So some of it was a little bit redundant with me in terms of the editing stuff, but I actually learned a whole bunch. What's the fucking guy's name? Ben something. Ben. Ben. What's your fucking name, Ben? I just typed Ben into the search engine there now like a fucking asshole. Ah, yeah, here we go. Uh, ben Noble. This guy called Ben Noble was was really an excellent guy and a great teacher, so it was good crack all around. Definitely some stuff that was really worth the money going on this course for. Uh, like, So Ben gave us a lot of little tips. One of the little tips that he gave me, for example, and I'm going to let you in on this now, this is top secret stuff, it's something to do with the kind of difference between doing a podcast and doing radio. One of the rules of thumb that he gave me that I'm going to share with you now is that it's probably best if you try not to say fuck every four seconds now that's something that you might not have thought of that's certainly nothing that i ever would have thought of before but apparently on the radio you're not really allowed to swear quite as fucking much as i do on this podcast so if i do want a career in radio i should probably have to correct that recording this backwards I'm recording this part at the start even though it's going to be in the middle but that is something I'm having to get used to because as I said we're trying to make a film at the moment and sometimes you have to shoot the start in the middle and the middle in the end and trying to get permits and all this shite is an absolute fucking nightmare trying to make this stuff work of course the great thing about that was I don't think I even mentioned that we're trying to make a film Uh, so obviously I still do not know how to edit forward and backwards in time but anyway I was out running errands and after I'd ran my couple of errands I was like I tell you what I'll do now I'll go and get a cup of coffee and I sit down and write some notes about this shooting script the order we're trying to shoot things in I knew that there was a Starbucks down the road and I was like ah yeah I'll go into Starbucks but then I saw a local coffee shop a local coffee chain it was called you know Fox Wolf or Ollie and Fork or Windle Twink and you know the letters are very arty like there's a bit of the A missing and the L becomes a question mark and all this fucking shit. So I was like, no, Alan, you should support local businesses now. You should go into a local coffee house. So I went into Foxglove or whatever the fuck it's called, opened the door, stepped in and straight away, straight away, I regretted going into this place because why? Why in the fuck every time you go into a locally owned coffee house is it like entering fucking Narnia where everything is upside down and nothing makes sense you know you come in you're greeted by a talking caterpillar in a top hat with a monocle smoking a fucking cigarette saying hello yes welcome welcome to our magical coffee kingdom first you must make your way through the enchanted forest of beanbags and recovered industrial lumber stools then if you are very very lucky you will arrive at the legendary 
multi-directional counter. Who knows which side a queue may start or end upon. Now remember, it's essential that you queue from left to right, but only on Tuesdays. And do bear in mind that I am the caterpillar who never lies. <laughs> After this, you must make your way through a sequence of passages, finally passing through the men's bathroom. Bearing in mind, of course, that the symbols on the men's and women's bathrooms are so obscure and witty that you will need all of your wits in order to decipher which is which. If, brave adventurer, you make it this far, you will be greeted by a satyr with a long beard and holes in his ears, at which time he shall call out names and beverages and you, dear sir or madam, will have to choose between the correct name and the wrong beverage, or the incorrect name and the correct beverage. Unless, of course, you decide that you want to pay a small but reasonable fee to enter the shared workspace loft of Azkabazan. If you choose to do so, your coffee will be raised up to you on a series of jigs and pulleys, at which time you may or may not choose to tip, bearing in mind that the card reading machine is actually outside in a building two or three blocks away. Fucking shoot me! Take me to Starbucks. Take me to somewhere where I know what the fucking system is, where to queue up and where to get my fucking coffee. That's all we want. We don't want an artisanally crafted, home-hewn, handmade fucking experience. We just want coffee and to sit the fuck down, please. So yeah, ah, so I left the coffee place. I went straight down to Starbucks, sat down and had a cup of coffee in there and everything was as I expected it to be. But I will say then when I was sitting down trying to do my notes, there was there was a bunch of people next to me that sort of got on my nerves. Uh, and they were, they were young people, but it doesn't matter that they were young people. Uh, that's not the reason they were getting on my nerves. Sometimes when you sit down in a public place and you, you just listen to people's conversations and it's not that there's anything wrong with the conversation. It's not, it's not that they're bad people or they're saying horrible things. It's just so inane. You know, it's just so deeply, painfully inane and boring. These people were like, Yeah, you know, we went, are you going out tonight? Yeah, I went out last night. When are we getting paid again for this thing that we're doing? Oh, did we get paid in January? No, no, we got paid... And I get paid every two weeks. Do you get paid every month? Yeah, I do, yeah. Did you see Susan yesterday? Yeah, I saw her, yeah. She was a thing with a thing. Look, have you seen this? Oh, yeah, that's good. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with the conversation these people were having. They were perfectly wonderful, nice people. And, you know, people do have different types of boring. And I'm sure I'm very boring to somebody else. But no, I'm not! That's a lie! I'm not boring, goddammit. And my friends aren't boring people because if they're boring people, they're not my fucking friends. I'm not saying that these people should be rounded up and put in trucks and then dumped into vats full of piranhas. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that when the zombie apocalypse comes and I am snugly inside my bunker and people come running up to the door and slamming on it and going, please, please, you've got to let us in. The zombies are coming. The nuclear radioactive zombies, they're coming. I would just very politely say, Sure thing, no, that's no problem, that's no problem at all Um, can you just, just tell me the last conversation you had What? What was the last thing you guys were talking about Just before the old zombie apocalypse happened uh, I, I, I don't know, I think I was, I was saying to Susan How, how I was going to change my mobile phone plan over to three Because they had be- 
better data coverage and it was, it was ridiculous really you know with BT I'm just not getting you know value for money and then we were like talking about you know what we thought was going to happen next in Game of Thrones and then what I will do is just, just very calmly and slowly just close that little shutter across the window just shh doom and wait for the gnashing and the screaming to begin. I, I guess this makes me a horrible fucking person. But I, I cannot stand boring people. Oh, do you know what another thing is now? I was thinking, I saw this the other day. I was in some other place sitting down having a cup of coffee. And it was a couple across from me. And it was an older couple. And they were just, they were sitting there in silence. Just drinking tea and eating fucking scones. Not looking at a newspaper, not doing anything. Just sitting there in silence. Now what reaction are you supposed to have if you're a normal, pleasant human being? You're supposed to go, God, that's great, isn't it? That's what true love is there now. Just two people who can sit across from each other. And just, just be comfortable enough to say Nothing to one another. That's just beautiful. It's it's gorgeous to see. And I just think, oh my fucking God, you boring, boring fucking bastards. Like all you've done, you're not in love. You've just found somebody who is as disinterested in you as you are in them. Now I'm not saying there isn't a time and a place for silence. It's good to be silent sometimes. It's good to be reflective. It's good even to be quiet around people who you like and care about and all this kind of stuff. But that's not what this was. That's not what it is nine times out of ten. It's boring fucking bastards who have got nothing to say. Nothing. You're 60 years old. You're 60 years old. You've been on the planet for 60 fucking years. And what? And in all this time, you have not even managed to accumulate the fodder, the contents for a single conversation. Ah, ah, fucking die. Fucking die. Fucking die. Die! That's all I have to say. Ah, oh, I'm a monster. People listen to that and, and think I'm a monster, but I'm right. I'm right. We're running out of oxygen. We're running out of natural resources. These people are a waste of time. There are people out there, fascinating, interesting, amazing people who are starving to death and dying. Those are the people we need to save. And these people, these boring fucking cunts, need to be set on fire. Ah, no. This is... You can't say this. Ben would not approve of this. This is not radio-appropriate behaviour. I'm done. I'm I'm done for. Okay, next topic. I can hear myself. I got a funny kind of a thing going on with my voice at the moment. I bit my fucking tongue earlier this morning. And now I'm talking. You know where your tongue kind of swells up or something happens with it. Now I'm talking with a swollen tongue. Oh, and that's brilliant because that brings me on to a new segment of the podcast that I want to introduce to you for 2019. And that is... Alan's aging body is falling apart, yeah. Last year you heard me complaining a lot about my back. Well, great news, listeners. Now my arm is fucked as well. I don't know what I did to myself over Christmas, but apparently the muscles in my mid-back have seized up and they're so tight that they yank the nerves in my arm, which means that I have shooting stabbing pains up and down my arm constantly. Now, those of you out there versed in the medical professions may say, oh, Alan, that sounds like maybe you're having a heart attack or a stroke. And it could be the case that I'm having a heart attack or a stroke. It just seems to be taking months and months to get there. 
You know, and I will say, if I think about my life in general, I definitely used to be more of an upright, speaking, coherent sort of person. And now, if you were to metaphorically describe me, you would probably say, yes, he is on the floor, drooling and babbling to himself. Uh, so yeah, in a way I am. I'm having a kind of a very long, long drawn out sort of a stroke. But more specifically about my arm, what I've been doing recently is going to some physiotherapy with this very nice lady down the road and she does massage therapy and she gives me fucking exercises to do. Oh, you get on a roller and you roll around and you do this and you do that. And I've been going for a few weeks and you know, every time you go back, they always say, oh, you know, how is that working? Have you had any progress? And the answer is no, no, I haven't had any fucking progress but you sort of feel bad saying that every fucking week. I'm saying that every fucking week to her. So I just, you know, I feel like I'm saying you're shit at this. Uh, and I am saying that in a way because there's no progress. But I, I don't know. I'm going to go to a couple more of these sessions and then I'm just going to give up. You know, I think what I have to do is I have to decide that I'm just, I'm just pain, man. I'm Mr. Pain. I wake up in pain. I'm in pain all day. I chomp a bunch of painkillers and I go to sleep in pain. And that's, that's me, man. That's my new, one of my new defining characteristics. I'm, ba- I'm basically like Max Payne, uh, the video game character, but just without having to fight any crime. You know, I'm just like Max Payne in Sainsbury's at two o'clock on a Tuesday. Mirror's men must have been just ahead of me. They'd cleaned out all of the shelves of that brand of filtered coffee that I like. I was going to have to resort to something called Waitrose Home Blend. They say every ballerina has to learn to tap dance at some stage. I guess today was my lucky day. Except instead of tap dancing, I was going to have to improvise a waltz with one arm tied. I don't know about angels, but it's fear that gives men wings. On the topic of grisly, growly, grunty detectives spouting semi-poetic philosophical nonsense and garbage, I recently revisited the television show True Detective. Uh, I didn't even realise the new season was coming out uh, until after I'd already bought this box set of season one and season two together, so I decided I would re-watch uh, both of them. And first things first, the first season definitely still stands up. It looks beautiful, uh, the soundtrack is excellent, the acting is superb, um, but the one reason I think it really really works very very well is because of the two main characters in it they certainly are excellent actors um, but it's the writing that really makes it work Rust Cole played by Matthew McConaughey is this dark, brooding, philosophical, pessimistic, Nietzschean guy who spouts all this quotable nihilistic sort of garbage really This is a world where nothing is solved Someone once told me time is a flat circle everything we've ever done or will do we're gonna do over and over and over again his character is beautifully offset against the woody harrelson character who just thinks of himself as a regular kind of a guy oh i was just a regular type dude with a big ass dick who keeps saying, Rust, I wish you'd stop saying bullshit like that. What you have is wonderful scenes where Rust Cole is going off on this dark philosophical stuff, sort of interjected or interrupted by the Woody Harrison character. The effect that this has is it allows the show to deal with this dark, over-the-top philosophical stuff, but the Woody Harrison character undermines it just enough so we never think that the show is getting too big for its boots or too pompous or too over-the-top. 
the re- one of the reasons why this works so beautifully well is that the Woody Harrison character is not just there to play that role. The Woody Harrison character is also really psychologically really well developed, has lots of problems of his own in terms of how his um, view of himself as a kind of ordinary nice guy, every man, is actually really a mask that he wears to cover up his own sort of more unpleasant impulses and desires. So the writing is very, very good, but the, it's more the structure and the way that one character plays off against another character that really makes the writing work. Now we come to the widely panned second season. Most people hated this. They thought it was awful. I remember watching it at the time thinking, oh God, this is crap. But you know, on revisiting it, it's not that bad in, uh, in the sense that I think there's some very good acting in there. There's some very nice cinematography in there. This really dry, dusty, harsh city environment is beautifully rendered and created. That said though, the story has loads of problems. It's too complicated. There's threads all over the place. You can't really work out what's going on. There's one scene towards the end of the fucking thing where they literally, they're all in a room just explaining the plot to each other because we're totally lost at that point as to what the fuck is happening with the plot. And it's really, it's not very well done and executed. Now, people kind of criticised Vince Vaughn in this and said he didn't do a very good job. I actually think his acting in this is quite good. I think he's quite convincing as, as a, in a straight man role. The problem is I don't think the writing is really there to support him in that. So I think that's a bit of a pity, but I, th- I think people were pretty unfair to him about that uh, at the time, if I remember correctly. Now, the flip side of that is Colin Farrell, uh, who again, the writing isn't tremendously good for, but Colin Boy, oh boy, he gristles and grumbles and gripples and gripes his way through this drudging dregory of drippy, drap, drunk, drudges onto the grunkly, crunkly, crinkly crock. You know, fuck. I have cough doing that. Um, fuck. Fuck, so yeah, he is the gnarled of gnarly detectives. He is the most grunty of growling, grumbling. I'm not going to go into it again. Detectives. I mean, I, I don't think it's his finest hour performance-wise. Um, um, but it is all right. And, you know, some of the female leads in it, like Kelly Riley or Rachel McAdams, they do a good job as well. The reason the second season doesn't work is the reason the first season does work. Much like the Russ Cole character, we have Vince Vaughn character, we have the Colin Farrell character spouting off all this dark, black, nihilistic sort of stuff. The problem is they have nobody to kind of counteract all that grim, grossly dark stuff. So it's like a true detective where everybody is Russ Cole. And the overall effect that that gives is it makes the show come across as kind of too pompous and too self-important. The most hilarious parts happen in this show where those characters meet up and have a conversation. I was going to parody this, but then when I was... There was one particular part in in one of the episodes that I just... I recorded because it's so fucking funny and I'm going to play it for you now. Here's what happens when two gnarled, dark, Nietzschean detectives meet. Well, that's some luck on you. Fuck. Casper's in so much dirt, there's no telling which side the axe came from, because let me tell you, there was some fucked up psychology at work in that place before it was a murder scene. Are you going to tell me what Casper was doing with you? Or do I wait to walk into another dark room, this time with real bullets? There's a certain stridency at work here. I'm going to put it off to you getting blasted. Oh, frankly, I'm apoplectic. I'm feeling a little apoplectic myself. It just turns into fucking incomprehensible fucking garbage. Ah, oh, it's great. 
Uh, finally, just a last note about season three of True Detective that is just out now on television. About uh, five episodes into it, I think it is. This this is definitely a return to form. It's definitely way better than the second season. Uh, what they've done is they've toned down some of the philosophical dark musings of the detectives in general. And they've gone back to the original dynamic of the, the two cops in the first one. Which is whereby you've got one cop who's quite dark and quite serious. And the other one who's a bit more, hey man, chill out. Um, now, I think... Hey man, chill out, cop played by Stephen Dorff. I don't think he has quite the same depth that the Woody Harrison character had, um, but the, the, the dynamic is starting to work again. And in the lead role, Mahershala Ali, I'm not sure if I'm saying the name correctly, uh, but he is superb. He's a, a fantastic actor. He does the sort of dark, brooding cop role really, really well. Now, the only thing I really don't like about this show is in the first season, they had two timelines. It was like original time when the case happened. Now the cops are older and looking back on the case. In this one, you have the original time where the case happened. The cops are older looking back on the case. The cops are even fucking older again looking back on the case. I I just don't think we need three different fucking timelines for character development. Do we need to see three different receding hairlines, three different sets of prosthetics, three different wardrobe changes to get the idea of character development? I don't fucking think so. I think that's the one thing that the show's doing that I'm a bit like, bleh. Um, But besides that, in general, it's a very good show so far and I'd definitely be watching the upcoming episodes. A fucking, that's it. That's, I forgot. I forgot that that's the format of this podcast is me being like, hey, look at my life. I watch TV. Isn't that great? Give, congratulate me. Congratulate me for sitting on my fucking ass doing nothing. Looking at a television. Well done, Alan. God, well you, well done. You got, you goddamn champion. Oh, jeez. Okay. All right. Now, the last few months when I've been absent uh, from the airwave, so to speak, I was doing a lot of teaching and work and lesson planning and preparation and all this stuff for the, the course that I'm doing. Uh, and uh, I was, you know, it was a lot of pressure. I was fairly stressed out. But the problem with me is I only ever buy films that are sort of dark and brooding and spooky and horrible. And like when you're stressed out from work and all this shit, that's the last thing you really want to watch when you come home. You know, you want to watch something lighthearted and stupid so your brain can just turn off. Hey baby, I hear the blues are calling Tossed salads and scrambled eggs Cue the re-arrival of the Frasier box set into my life In the past few months I watched every single episode of Frasier And there are, hang on, let me check They're calling again There are 11 fucking seasons of this show it, uh, Which is, I had no idea there were that many Uh which is fucking amazing. Now, one thing I'll say about Frasier is it is light, it is fluffy, uh, and it's good fun. Uh, most of the humour, actually, I think has aged pretty well. Uh, there's a few scenes, you know, where Niles or whatever is kind of perving on Daphne that seem a little bit not okay today. But really, for the most part, in, in general, it actually has aged very, very well. Uh, which is unusual for sitcoms from that uh, time period. Now, one of the things that is very starkly clear about it is it is not an ethnically diverse cast. This is all about rich, white dudes in Seattle. And really, uh, with one or two exceptions, uh, 
uh, there are almost no people in this show that are not white people. Um, so from that point of view, you could argue that that is quite problematic. Um, but besides that, I would say in general, it, it is quite a gentle and pleasant lampooning of rich snob classes. I think there's really nice interplay between the father, Martin Crane, who's like this grizzled working class retired cop, and his eruddite, snooty, dweeby uh, children who are Fraser and Niles. And the dynamic between the characters works really well to gently poke fun at kind of snooty high society but also to kind of gently mock the problems of the the, the, the tough guy working class guy uh, that is the role of Marty Crane there are two things that I think are really impressive about the series basically it manages to sort of rephrase or redo the same gag over and over and over again for a fucking 11 series without ever really word for word repeating any of the gags. Things are always rephrased or done in a different way or a slightly different way, which means actually you can watch episode after episode after episode in a row and you don't get the feeling like it's the same thing over and over again. Certainly not in a word for word sense. And that might not sound like much, but actually if you look at a lot of the comedy sitcoms, especially the older ones at the moment, I'm re-watching The Addams Family from the 60s and I'm going to talk about that some more maybe in the next episode. They literally use reuse the same gags uh, word for word again and again and lots of other television series do that as well. So the fact that Frasier manages to rephrase and reframe the same sort of gags over and over again uh, is quite an achievement in a way. The last point that I think is quite interesting is when you think of Frasier you think oh witty wordplay. Thanks for the chat Niles. You're a, a good brother and a, a credit to the psychiatric profession. You're a good brother, too. Whereas, actually, I would say a disproportionately large amount of the humour in Frasier comes from physical humour, visual gags, and fantastic comic timing. Really, like, I I, kind of didn't remember that from thinking back on the episodes. The comic timing of some of the sort of, you know, noises off, upstairs, downstairs gags of people coming in and out of rooms and uh, certain information being withheld from certain characters... This t- television series really is a masterclass on how to do visual gags, slapstick comedy, and above all, comic timing. Uh, so really, if that's something that you're interested in, I definitely recommend you take a look back again at some of those Frasier episodes. Because they really are surprisingly fantastic when it comes to that type of humour. Right! Now, just to keep things gritty and dark and pulpy, uh, one of the films that I went to see in the last few months that I thought was absolutely fantastic was Mandy. So what are you going to do with that man? I'm going hunting. So what you hunting? It's crazy evil. Mandy is a totally psychotic, psychedelic, beautiful revenge murder sci-fi acid trip that features uh, Nicolas Cage, uh, Linus Roach, Angela Riseberg, and directed by Panos Cosmatos. Uh, who is what a great name Panos Cosmatos he sounds like he should be a baddie in one of the Avengers films or something like that this film is fucking not so bananas Uh, the state I saw this film in I was coming back from I went on a brief holiday to Barcelona I joined one of their sort of semi-secret underground weed clubs Uh, and if you join one of these clubs it's legal to smoke weed and consume weed products in the premises and I drank a bunch of fucking THC infused uh, fucking syrup stuff and went fucking crazy Uh, and I saw the devil and it was me when I came back to the UK my brain was kind of blown in a good way like uh, and I just wanted to go and 
and see a movie or something just to kind of chill out. There was a late night big screen screening of Mandy uh, in the Comedia. It was it was amazing. Definitely, if you get a chance to see this thing on the big screen, do. The colours of this film are just so beautiful. There's all these neon pinks and purples. Um, the title cards are kind of drawn in this animated way. Um, uh, and one thing that actually I'm going to put a link to that Nerdwriter recently did a video on about um, that I myself noticed a little bit in the film is how the film uses film grain um, so obviously presumably it's shot on digital but they, they kind of put the effect of film grain over the top and this is used to great effect in the film to give it kind of a pulpier older 60s 70s kind of vibe but the other thing that it does that the nerd writer points out that I think that I hadn't really thought about is it also kind of plays around with kind of focus and details and it gives the whole thing a kind of dreamlike effect because again uh, top credit to the nerd writer for pointing this out when you have that old 16mm film grain stock everything kind of moves a little bit even in a scene when there's no actual movement the grain itself moves and that helps heighten this kind of psychedelic effect that the film is going for this film is fascinating for a whole bunch of different reasons visually it's completely beautiful this cosmatos bloke has just created this entire weird psychedelic world uh, that works marvelously i think the way the world changes and moves as the film progresses number one is really really interesting So in the opening shots, um, we are put in a very specific time and place. Ronald Reagan is on the radio uh, talking about sex and violence or something. I can't remember what it is. Um, A a title card tells us it's 1981 and we're in, where are we supposed to be? Oklahoma or somewhere. And Nicolas Cage is chopping down trees. He's a lumberjack. Um, So it gives us a very definite time and place. And then as the film goes on and Nicolas Cage pursues these bad guys, he kind of goes deeper and deeper into a stranger landscape. At one point we see that there are now two sons as opposed to one son. Um, Some of the sequences become animated. Monsters and mutants start coming out. The world gets more animated as it goes on. It's a very simple little device, but it creates a very interesting effect of putting us in the real world but also out of the real world and it just does it in a very simple nice way second thing I think is really interesting about this film is how the film progresses so there's a couple of spoilers in here but you nearly probably know the spoilers by now so Nicolas Cage who plays Red and Andrea Riseberg who played Mandy they live a sort of pleasant idyllic life in this cabin out in the middle of the woods uh, then one day a cult is passing through in their cult mobile uh, a very Manson-esque kind of a vibe to the whole thing the cult leader sees Mandy walk along the road says I want you to go and get her and the lads say no problem I'll go get her and then he says hey do you have the magic sword of blah 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 and the guy goes I sure do and they summon up these mutant biker monster demons to help them come and attack Red and uh, kidnap Mandy uh, which is what they do. And then, you know, at the, from that point on, things are just going to get madder and madder in the story. Um, Mandy doesn't want to be part of the cult, laughs at the cult leader when he tries to get it on with her. And then they basically kill her in a horrible fashion. And Nicholas Cage goes on a murder rampage to kill them all and get revenge. And that is the story. The thing about the story that is quite interesting, I think, is the Nicholas Cage character development. Because he seems like quite a nice guy, a likeable guy um, in lots of ways. As he goes on the murder spree, what we notice is the the guys he's killing 
kind of get easier and easier to kill. It definitely seems that he's getting better at it and he's getting sort of stronger and he takes some LSD and drugs and things. He gets hepped up uh, as he goes along. But also it seems like the enemies get easier. So the mutant monster bikers are pretty fucking tough. But by the time it gets to the end, the, the cult leader himself, it's really, really easy. And... Uh, the, even the last scene uh, where he's again spoiler alert you know he crushes the guy's head and the guy says please you know whatever I'll, I'll do whatever and he goes I'm your god now and it doesn't really feel very satisfying you feel like the Nicolas Cage character I think anyway has kind of gotten nastier and nastier and more and more violent as the course of the movie has gone on and at the end he hallucinates that Mandy um, is in the car with him as he leaves this valley of monsters or whatever it is Um, but the smile he has on his face is this manic insane smile uh, that doesn't look like one who's like a happy person who's like okay you know I've done well so I think the movie is playing around with sort of undermining this idea of of violence and vengeance uh, being a good thing or something that can ever bring you any kind of sense of uh, moral validation or satisfaction or something like that um, so that's one aspect of it that's really really interesting the other thing that I think is fantastic about this whole film is connected to how people reacted to it in the cinema to start with it's all quite it's really beautifully shot and it's amazing and the acting is strong it's really good and the characters are creepy and oh something horrible is going to happen but but as it goes on more and more kind of ridiculous stuff happens like some of Nicolas Cage's reactions to like um the, the horrible events are like bah, like over the top so the classic Nicolas Cage over the top stuff and and the, the things that happen as the movie go on get more and more schlocky and absurd and it was really interesting to see at which points different people in the audience started to laugh because no one was laughing at the start but then a few people laughed and then by the end of it people were sort of just kind of even the parts that seemed a bit more serious sort of in bits laughing um, but not always laughing and that taps into what is really really interesting about this film this is something that came up on the Wise Crack podcast uh, Show Me the Meaning uh, which is uh, they do loads of very interesting podcasts they're having a Nicolas Cage month at the moment so it's fucking great but they're theory was that basically Mandy is an example of something that is called the grotesque. Now the concept of the grotesque actually goes all the way back to the Roman Empire um, and basically the sort of the idea of the grotesque was kind of discovered I think if I'm right about this sort of um, after the Roman Empire in the, in, in the kind of Renaissance period they looked back on some of the Roman architecture and lots of it's beautiful and, and it's, it's wonderful stuff but also there was this sort of down home weird bits of architecture that seemed to be kind of schlocky and strange and there was like faces on fucking goblets and there was kind of unusual uh, borders and edges around things that just kind of looked a bit gammy I think is probably how you'd best describe it. This was found in certain um, underground parts of churches uh, that were uh, caves and that's the etymology of the word it comes from grotto or cave um, because of the original place where this kind of art was discovered if I am correct. However, um, the word grotesque today has kind of become to be used, and this is according to Wikipedia, as a general adjective for the strange, the mysterious, the magnificent, fantastic, hideous, ugly, incongruous, unpleasant or disgusting. And, interesting note here, thus is often used to describe weird shapes and distorted forms such as Halloween masks. Now, 
people use the word grotesque to mean gross, ugly, strange looking and interesting enough the words grotty as uh, English people would say or grody as Americans would say or just gross as both say um, all have their origins in the word grotesque itself. However the thing about the grotesque that sets it apart from just being weird or gross is the effect that it has on the audience. And one of the words in that Wikipedia description that sums it up really, really nicely is incongruous. The coming together of disparate elements. And I'm going to quote here a guy from the 15, an artist from the 1500s, um, Giorgio Vasari, uh, when he describes what the grotesque paintings of the past looked like to him in the 1500s. Grotesques are a type of extremely licentious and absurd painting done by the ancients without any logic so that a weight is attached to a thin thread which could not support it. A horse is given legs made of leaves. A man has crane legs with countless other impossible absurdities. And the bizarre the painter's imagination, the higher he was rated. So there's two types of incongruousness here that I think are really important and interesting when it comes to the grotesque. One is the incongruousness of elements brought together. So things look look impossible or look strange or look out of place so the interesting example he gave the horse that had leaves for legs you know that just wouldn't work it doesn't make sense it's illogical the other form of incongruousness that the grotesque creates is not so much the incongruousness in the image itself but the incongruous reaction that it creates in the audience or the viewer and a uh, one description of this again this I think this is from the um, Cambridge Dictionary grotesque may also refer to something that simultaneously invokes in an audience a feeling of uncomfortable bizarreness as well as sympathetic pity. Now this is getting closer to the point of the grotesque that is quite interesting. It's having two conflicting responses to the thing in front of you. So on the one hand there's an unpleasant, uncomfortable, freaked out response. And the response that I would say is one that is not of Empathy. It doesn't come from really liking or understanding the viewpoint of the character or the creature or whatever it is that you're looking at. This weird sort of revulsion, comical or disgusting or strange, non-empathetic response is on the one hand. And yet on the other hand, it is coupled with a more empathetic response whereby which we actually feel for the character. We feel for the person in question. And of course, another classic place where you see the grotesque is in freak shows and circumstances. And these, I mean, a freak show really is an ultimate example of the grotesque. This is literally what the freak show was trying to do. It would get people who had certain types of deformities. It would invoke revulsion in the audience. But just revulsion was not what it was selling. It also invoked a sympathetic or empathetic response to the person as a human being. That is the grotesque in a nutshell, I think. Conflicting empathetic and non-empathetic responses simultaneously occurring or perhaps we might say occurring in quick succession one after another. That is exactly what this film does masterfully well. There are certain junctures, like there's a scene where Nicolas Cage is in the the bathroom basically freaking out after his his girlfriend has been horribly murdered. And the scene is over the top and ridiculous and hilarious in a way. And in another way, it's it's really heartbreaking. It's really heart-wrenching and awful. 
Um, uh, and uh, that scene, I think, is is reproduced throughout the film in lots of different ways. Where at some junctures we genuinely feel for the character of Red and what he's going through, and then at other junctures it's just too ridiculous. It's too over the top. It's too awful. Now, I think, in particular, the scene where he's crying and drinking vodka and screaming is the scene that really brings this all together. This concept of grotesque stuff I find fascinating, and I'm really going to be on the lookout for it more now that this film has brought it to my attention and also be thinking about how I can use it in my own nonsense as well. Right, now getting on to Glass, a movie which is tried. Maybe this will all make sense if I explain who I am. My name is Dr. Ellie Staple and I'm a psychiatrist. I specialize in those individuals who believe they are superheroes. Glass by M. Night Shyamalan. Glass is the third installment in the surprise superhero trilogy uh, directed by M. Night Shyamalan. And I say surprise because actually the first film was Unbreakable uh, that seemed to be a standalone effort. Then there was another film called Split um, that seemed like it was standalone right until the very last scene when it was revealed that Split was in the same universe as Unbreakable and shortly afterwards M. Night Shyamalan said I'm going to do a third one of these things and they were all it was all a plan all along the man notorious for giving us twists gave us a real life movie making twist so quick rundown of what the films are about Unbreakable is a film about Bruce Willis uh, and Bruce Willis is in a train wreck and he survives he's the only one who survives he meets this dude Elijah played by Samuel L. Jackson Elijah is super frail every bone in his body is can break at a, the slightest touch but he also has massive intelligence and he basically says listen comic books are real there are such things as superheroes I came to this realisation when I realised if I'm this frail there must be someone on the other end of the spectrum who is just that strong and that indestructible and that's you and I've been looking for you for ages and you know villains, superheroes you've got to become a superhero where you know blah 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 in the end spoiler alert it turns out that he's the one Mr. fucking Elijah Glass is the one who organised the train crash and a whole bunch of other terrorist things because he was trying to find Bruce Willis he was trying to find that superhero person who could survive the awful awful things the end da 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 number two in the second film this is a shorter one um, there's this bloke played by what's his name Jason McElmore Ewan McGregor Ewan McGregor Ewan McGregor plays this character who's got multiple personalities I'm Mary Reynolds Por favor, senora We almost got you, bro And one of the personalities happens to like kidnapping, murdering and raping schoolgirls The beast is coming any minute now for you guys And the other few personalities are kind of they're alright but they're basically along for the ride as well Blah, blah, blah Cabin, uh, no, not cabin fever What's it called? Oh, when you start to like your captors Munchausen? No. What's the fucking fall? Fall in love with captor syndrome. <laughs> Stockholm syndrome. There it is. So Anna Taylor-Joy is one of the tied up cheerleaders or whatever she is. And uh, she kind of, you know, uh, makes one of the personalities think that she likes them so she can get away. But then she kind of does seem like she likes some of the personalities, like in a genuine way. Anyway, it's arguably quite problematic. Last thing about Split that's really good, and this is a spoiler alert. So if you, if I just skip ahead a few seconds if you don't want to hear this. Um, but there's a part at the end where he kind of, the beast character kind of crawls up a wall. And you're like, how the fuck is he doing that? That doesn't make 
any sense. And there's a sort of an implication that there's some sort of supernatural uh, element at work as well. And that in itself could be rubbish and throwaway, but because it arrives so late in the story, it actually is quite interesting and it doesn't detract from the rest of the film. Blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of that, oh, Mr. Unbreakable's in this universe too. Number three. In this one, all three of the lads, Elijah, who's the blown up trains, fucking Mr. Indestructible Bruce Willis, and James McElmore, Ewan McGregor, fucking, well, sure, he's split personality, so it doesn't matter. Split personality, lad. They're all in a mental institute. Sarah Paulson uh, plays the doctor lady who has them all in a mental institute who says, Listen, lads, did you ever think that maybe you're not superheroes and this is a load of bullshit? It's just all in your head. And they go, Ah, no, like I fucking got out of a train wreck. And she goes, Well, blah, 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 that's that's possible and then Mr Glass goes ah yeah no but I'm fucking mad clever and I've got brittle bones she's like well that can be explained very easily as well and then you know Split the guy who had the sort of supernaturally thing that the Split personality guy did she says oh blah 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 that can be explained as well so the film is basically the three lads in a mental institute going god maybe we're not superheroes James McAvoy what's Ewan McGregor hang on who is he James McAvoy Who's Ewan McGregor? Is he a football? You, you, Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor. I thought they were the same fucking bastard. Okay, sorry, sorry. So James McAvoy, not Ewan McGregor. They're both from Scotland. They're both the same. Who fucking cares? So the whole film is just them moping around the mental asylum going, God, maybe I'm a Superman. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. And you want going, you know, I don't think you are. And then Mr. Glass engineers so that they can all escape. And he's like, no, lads, you are superheroes. I'm going to break you out of here. You're going to go to the... I'm going to get split guy to go to the top of this big, huge new building. And you on unbreakable guy you're going to fight him and we're going to show the world that superheroes are real and blah, blah blah but anyway they get as far as the parking lot basically and they have a big fight and then spoiler alert but it doesn't matter because this film is shite a sniper team appears and kills them all basically and the reason the snipers kill them all it is revealed is because fucking Sarah Paulson Dr. Lady is part of a secret group and this secret group's job is to make sure no one ever finds out that superheroes are real and the way they stop them is by convincing the superheroes that are real that they're not really superheroes and if that doesn't work they fucking shoot them and don't oh wow mind blown and the last scene is the peripheral characters who I didn't even mention because who gives a fuck um, they have footage of this whole thing and they, they put it out to the world and the whole world discovers that superheroes are real and it's this big huge dramatic scene they're waiting in a fucking bus station or something looking at their phones oh the world knows this is going to change everything number one who gives a fuck man like who cares there's nothing character building about the world we didn't even know this doctor and these other lads were baddies up until you know the very end and now oh we're and but then the baddies are undone but we didn't even know the baddies so who cares that they've been undone and everyone knows about superheroes and who gives a fuck if the superheroes are not it's not real it's a fucking film the you know uh Problem number two. As an idea, it's a good idea. Um, and it's a kind of an inversion of, you know, if God didn't exist, we would need to create him, uh, wherever that quote's from. It's an inversion of that. It's saying if gods existed, we would need to destroy them in the sense of making people believe that they did not exist. So that's quite a clever inversion. That's a good idea. But as, unfortunately, with lots of things, with M. Night Shyamalan, a good idea is not the same as a good film. 
Now there's parts of the film that play around with it when you're like, God, maybe they aren't superheroes. That There's little bits that sort of work. But the film as a whole is shite because although it has a good little idea at its centre, and although it does have, you know, some good characters, it doesn't bring them together in a cohesive or compelling story. And that's what you need to do. Even if you care more about the idea than you do about, the, we'll say, the plot or the characters, you have to give us that, that plot, that story or whatever you want to call it in order to bring people into the idea. Lastly, at the end of this film, the way it's shot, the way it's paced, especially the end sequence, we're supposed to think, oh, these horrible, bad people have come to kill the superheroes. This is terrible. And then at the very end, when everyone finds out about the superheroes and the the lady doctor is undone, and we're supposed to go, yeah, yeah, the world's going to know the superheroes. But hang on a minute now. Let's just rewind a second. We've got three supposed superheroes here in the mix, right? One of them is Mr. Unbreakable, and Bruce Willis he's pretty sound he goes around righting wrongs and he's kind of a vigilante hero and he's pretty sound Mr. Glass is a fucking wanted known terrorist who killed thousands of fucking people just so he could find one Bruce Willis and fucking Mr. Split Ewan McGregor James McAvoy whatever the fuck his name is he captures and murders and fucking rapes schoolgirls and we're supposed to be like oh but they're the goodies what? No. You know, the film is shite. It's just shite, man. It's shite. Stay away. Out of the three, Split is probably the most entertaining and the most interesting. Unbreakable is pretty good, if I remember correctly, although it's been a long time now. That was 2000 that came out. In. Uh, but Glass is... is <coughs> it's shite. Right now, podcasts. Okay, podcasts have been listening to the last while. I've been listening to all my usual ones and I'm always picking up new ones all the time. Uh, but there's two or three I just want to go through uh, because I think they're very, very interesting. First one is called Monster by How Stuff Works. Now, Monster is actually a kind of a continuation uh, of a series. The first series in this show was called Atlanta Monster which is all about a serial killer in Atlanta. Really interesting first season. The second season is Monster the Zodiac Killer. It's all about the Zodiac serial killer who uh, terrorised people in in and around San Francisco and the Bay Area in the 1960s and early 1970s and was notoriously never caught for his crimes. If you're already into true crimey kind of podcasts you're going to like this one. The production values are fantastic. It's really nicely paced and put together in a way that is engaging without being over-engineered, which is sometimes how I feel some some of the plotting of this true crime stuff comes across. But even if you're not normally into true crime podcasts, I just think the way this is put together and produced is really is very, very engaging. So that is Monster, produced by iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works and a crowd called Tenderfoot. TV. Now, getting on to a couple of pods that I've been listening to for a good while that I absolutely love, but I just haven't been able to put in the podcast uh, yet. So, the first one is Monster Porn. A listener asks, how did you come up with the name Monster Porn? Well, after assembling market research and conducting several focus groups, we just threw all that out and tossed a dart at your mom's search history. Welcome to Monster Porn.
getting back to the gross and the nasty and the grotesque. Monster Porn is written by these two lads, Brett Norwood and Matt Cummins. Uh, and it is a really, really interesting show. It is vile and nasty and creepy and kind of body horror. It describes itself as a horror and weird fiction podcast. And I would say it, that's weird fiction in the sort of Lovecraftian definition. Now, I'm not normally into like horror, creepy pasta, schlocky kind of stuff that's got a lot of like body horror. I don't really like that stuff generally. But uh, the writing in this is so good that that stuff works and that stuff is not just there to shock and disgust you uh, and then there's nothing behind it. All that weird, creepy body stuff, horror stuff is supporting certain themes and ideas. Characters are really well realised in a very short amount of time. It's an anthology series, so every week you get a new kind of a story, but they're all in this kind of creepy, horrible sort of a style. Coming back to the concept of the grotesque, this show, when it's good, is grotesque in the kind of more common definition of the term where it's, you know, it's gross and it's it's weird and it's horrible. But at its best, it is grotesque in that other definition of the word, which is that, yes, it's gross and disgusting and comical, but also it generates real empathy for the characters who are kind of suffering uh, in the different tales. My favourite episodes so far have actually been some of the sort of shorter mini episodes. There's one called Hands, uh, which is, if you've watched The Adams Family, there's sort of thing-like creatures running around causing all sorts of unpleasant activity. The thing under the comforter moved forward by a couple inches. I had hardly begun to react when it surged toward me, and the fingers found my ribs touching me as if just to touch me, and, throwing the covers aside, I leapt out of the bed, already clutching the bat. The hand was palm up on the mattress, flailing like an upturned insect trying to right itself. I wailed on it, but the mattress was too soft. The bat only pressed it into the mattress with each strike, and eventually, it took advantage of a transient grip on the bat to flip itself over and begin to run. It went off the far side of the bed. It's just a really nice little idea for a story. The other piece that I absolutely love is called Purgatory, uh, which is essentially about some character who kind of wakes up in hell. The way the story unfolds and is structured uh, and some of the themes and ideas it gets to, I think are fantastic. And it does so in a really short amount of time. In my opinion, Monster Porn is one of the best, most innovative and interesting uh, short audio horror fiction podcasts out there at the moment check it out my only caveat to that would be don't eat whilst you're listening to these podcasts because that's not gonna help the next podcast that i've been meaning to talk about for a while that i absolutely love is the darkest hour uh, which is a fictional late night women's hour radio show broadcasting on a public radio station in inner city dublin uh, this podcast is masterminded and created by barbara bergen who basically writes edits produces it does all the voices as far as i can tell I love this show. This is one of the most interesting, strange podcasts out there. And it's one of these ones that I think is really pushing the medium and playing around with what it can be. Jacintha Grogan is the fictional host of the Women's Hour show. And she is a cancer survivor who has written a book that nobody seems to want to buy. The Women's Hour obviously has a kind of a feminist theme to it. But at the same time, Jacintha Grogan herself sort of seems to come out with stuff that we might not think of as being that PC in onto itself. Um, she has lots of very interesting guests, including a ghost of an orphan who died in the 1918 flu epidemic in Ireland. There's also 
her brother who has had sex reassignment surgery or maybe he's just identifies as a woman I can't remember what it is now who is now a woman who is often a guest on the show but still it kind of talks with a really thick sort of a Dublin accent even though now he's a woman it's really cleverly done really well executed dark strange comedy I mean like uh, oh, the other thing I really love about the show it's got all these different sort of corporate sponsors Black Bull energy drink Lone Wolf dating for people who want to date themselves which in itself is a really clever little lampooning of, of product placement and advertising within podcasts and radio itself and how that can sometimes undermine the moral message of what you're trying to go for uh, I really I just think there's so many little clever uh, um, elements in this show one of my favorite sections is the inner city mindfulness uh, section i'm going to play you a little bit from that now i breathe in as i walk into the patch of grass that passes as a park in my neglected neighborhood i breathe out grateful that the metadown bus has cleared the park of the addicts that frequent it daily i breathe in Listening to me fodden neighbours who have taken up local drinking habits. I breathe out as a racialist talk crosses me mind. I breathe in. Two teenagers rattle a plastic bag that they are filling full of glue. I breathe out. Stopping to watch a line of ants march under a used condom. I breathe in. Horrified as the condom starts to move. I breathe out. Losing respect for the ant kingdom over what they're going to have for their dinner. The reason little segments like that are so good is because, yes, they're funny, but also they're making a, a very subtle point, which is that if you live in a wealthy, nice area where there's lots of quiet, it's a lot easier to facilitate inner peace and zen and all this stuff. If you live in an inner city area which is full of more hecticness and also bad things that you can see around you like crime and poverty and so forth, that is going to make it harder for you to find inner peace. The real reason though that I love, love, love this show is because it creates an atmosphere, this kind of an atmosphere that we were going for with the Michael Doesn't Know podcast uh, when we released it all those years ago and that is it perfectly encapsulates that 4am sort of in insomnia or night shift atmosphere um you know because the thing about four o'clock in the morning like it's too late to go to sleep it's too early to get up nobody's around you're kind of by yourself i mean i i used to work night jobs and things like that and it perfectly encapsulates the strangeness the darkness the loneliness of that feeling but also the kind of the manicness of that feeling the sort of manic comedy giddiness that you get when it's really late at night I love this show I think Barbara Bergen is doing some amazing work here if you're into funny strange podcasts that are also pushing the envelope in terms of what a podcast can be boom definitely give the Darkest Hour podcast a listen you know it just occurred to me there that you could draw parallels between the Darkest Hour podcast and and the Night Vale podcast Um, but the thing Thing is, I think really most of what the Night Vale podcast is about, although it's very, very well produced, is it's just for laughs. You know, there's not much more going on below the laughs. Uh, in the later episodes, they kind of got into more interesting narratives and stories, and there was a bit of character development and so forth. But this podcast from the jump is doing really interesting things that are not just about the laughs but the laughs are still there uh, and that is just one of the many reasons why I love this show 
Right, nearly done now. Staying with audio. What music have I been listening to since the new year started? Not much new. More my same old shite, you know, my same old playlist I've been listening to over and over. Although one kind of thematically thing that I've been listening to a bit more of is kind of, I guess you'd probably describe it as southern gothic kind of music. Um, uh, so this is think this is kind of harking back to our true detective stuff again and, and in fact the uh, one of the artists that I'm going to recommend to you now is the Handsome Family who were the people who actually um, played the song that is for the opening credits of True Detective Series 1 the song that I've been listening to non-stop though on repeat is, fr- is by the Handsome Family off their album Unseen from 2016 and the name of that song is Gold I think it has one of the best opening lines or stanzas or whatever uh, in, of any song I've ever heard. Have a listen. Got a tattoo of a snake And a ski mask on my face But I woke up in a ditch Behind the stop and go I just love that man It just gets me every time I think it's fantastic uh, An artist who's kind of In the same vein As those guys Is uh, some guy I'd never heard of before I don't know how I came across him uh, Joe Pug He plays these country songs That have really very interesting Lyrics and content And although his voice is, Seems you know Quite relaxed It is And maybe I'm just projecting here But it is Palpable How much like Hidden Rage and anger is behind the lyrics. This song is called Speak Plainly Diana. Now there's a couple of different versions of it. Uh, This is the acoustic version from his EP Nation of Heat. And I definitely think the acoustic version is the best possible version. Come lately Diana and quit what's got you down. Steal from the tallest cabinet and make your favorite sound. And when there's too much to get rid of, and you get rid of me, speak plainly to me, Diana. There's nothing you must be said. I don't mind riding around. I don't, I don't know what it is, man. It's just something around. about that. It just, it just fucking nails me. I just, I love it. Uh, he's got loads of other great songs too. Another one that's really awesome is uh, Nation of Heat, the song itself, but also um, I Do My Father's Drugs. Uh, it's a really great tune. They're just, they're interesting, man. And that rage, man, I love it. Right, finally, I normally do a little segment on some videos or youtube videos or something I've been looking at recently. Uh, what I've been listening to a lot in the last few months that has been really great, Alan Watts uh, videos or Alan Watts recordings. Now... Alan Watts is a sort of philosopher dude. He was born in 1915 in the UK. His father was a missionary, and when his father came back from being on missionary in Asia, he brought back different paintings and and decorations from Japan and China. And Alan Watts was like, oh man, they look really cool. Look at that interesting style. So that first got him interested in kind of um, ideas coming from the East. In 1938, he moves over to New York and starts studying Zen philosophy. After he studied Zen for a long time, he studied theology. Then he went back to study to become an Episcopal priest in 1945. That lasted for about five years. Uh, Then he had an affair and was booted out. Uh, And then he moved down to San Francisco where he gained popularity and notoriety broadcasting on KPFA Pacifica Radio where he would talk about Zen, Buddhism and Eastern philosophy and this kind of stuff. Eventually he went on to do some public television shows. Uh, He toured around Europe doing a few different shows where he bumped into Carl Jung and a bunch of people. Uh, He ended up studying East Asia 
Asian studies, I think it was in San Francisco again. Basically, his whole thing was like looking at Eastern philosophy, looking at Zen Buddhism, looking at Hinduism and Taoism and things like that. Sort of trying to take that stuff and introduce it to the English speaking American public. And he was doing all this between the years of the sort of 1930s all the way through to the 1970s. So he was the first one to really popularize this idea of Zen Buddhism and these other Eastern philosophical ideas. Now, he's not without his critics. Um, lots, you know, people from those different uh, disciplines or religious systems sometimes criticize him and say he misunderstood uh, some of the philosophies that he was uh, studying. But at the same time, he is definitely clearly a very intelligent, very interesting and hilarious guy. And even his misinterpretations themselves can be quite interesting. Um, I definitely don't think you should take everything Alan Watts says as the uh, last word on Buddhism or Hinduism or anything like that. That's definitely uh, not the right approach to have to it. But this guy, his lectures are fantastic if you're looking for something that kind of give you a bit of a shake to get you out of your rut to make you start thinking about like what is actually important in my life what do I really want to do Alan Watts lectures throw on any one of them I'll give you a quick sample here therefore it's so important to consider this question what do I desire well when we answer that question in a naive way we figure out that we want a desire uh, what we want is to control everything. The moment you have a situation where you are really in control of things, that is to say in which the future is almost completely predictable. You will see, as I said last night, that a completely predictable future is already the past. You've had it. And that's not what you wanted. You want a surprise. You don't know what that's going to be because obviously it wouldn't be a surprise if you did. So you're like somebody taking a, one of those wishing well boxes, you know, tubs, you know, where you fish in and you bring out a package. And you don't know whether you've got a dead rat in it or a new camera. <laughs> and that's the way, that's, that seems to be the thing that really excites people. So again, it's all airy-fairy stuff and, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, well, you know, you don't have to deal with the realities of having a job and having six kids and all that. And that's true, you know. I mean, obviously, you know, you have to take this stuff with a grain of salt as well. But I find him very, very inspiring and very, very entertaining as well. Another way that you can consume Alan Watts, if you would like to, is through a video game called everything what that was created by an irish artist called david o'reilly uh, i have this on my computer everything is one of the most interesting games i've ever come across what you are is you start life as i don't know you just start life as a stick or a rock or something like that and you roll around uh, a sort of environment and then what happens is you slowly as the game goes on you get the ability to change from one object to another to enter into other objects and become them for a while so you can become a tree for a while and then you can become a dog for a while and then as the game goes on you get more and more powers one might say in the sense that you sometimes you can duplicate yourself or you don't have to transition from going from one animal or one object to another object you can all you can just spontaneously become those objects you can also go 
from a macro scale of being something huge down to the microcosmic scale where you're actually in amongst atoms and molecules. Now it's a procedurally generated game which means it's a sort of a different environment every time. And the last point is as you go and as you get more powers and as you interact with other objects which by the way talk to you you know you'll bump into a comb that goes oh I used to think that I was a stone but now I'm a comb. God life's gas isn't it? Um, and the, the different objects say different things. The little speech bubbles pop up. Uh, and then sometimes the objects you bump into uh, trigger audio clips of different bits of Alan Watts lectures. So it's a really interesting, totally fucking trippy way to kind of get access to that Alan Watts ideas. And obviously the philosophy stuff that Alan Watts is exposing is stuff that this David O'Reilly guy is interested in. The game is fascinating. The game is not about getting anywhere or doing anything. It's just kind of about existing and roaming around the universe and enjoying being different objects and enjoying exploring and enjoying just finding new, strange, procedurally generated sort of environments. If you're the type of person who likes skill-based games, problem-solving games, this is not the one for you in that regard. It is a really calm, strange, philosophical, trippy game that does literally go nowhere in many regards. But I really, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's just, it's so fucking interesting. God bless this David O'Reilly guy. Right, so there you go. That's the here it is. Fuck you, Friday. The least chill, least zen, least enlightened fucking podcast in the world telling you how you should be living your life and being more zen and chilled out and cool, man. Wow. There's a big chunk of irony for you. Right, so thought of the day. Thought of the day comes from a conversation I had with my good friend Louise recently who was saying she was thinking about a career change. And she said, you know, on paper... I would be mad to change jobs from this job A to job B. On paper, I would be mad to do it, so I'm not sure if I should. And I said, and this is thought of the day, fuck on paper. On paper is good for absolutely fucking nothing. The only thing on paper is good for is at your eulogy that someone could read it out and go, oh God, you know, they had a great old career. They did a great job or a great whatever it is. Fuck things that make sense on paper. Do things that make sense for you in your real human life. Right, that's it. Fuck you Friday out 2019. You're the pig. <laughs> Fuck, 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 fuck